Oh, hey, Don. Hey, how are you? Pretty good. Uh, this is Brennan. I don't know if you two talked before. Hey, Don, how are you doing? Hey, good. Good, good. How are you doing? Uh, not too bad. Not too bad. Getting by. Really All nice right. to meet you, man. Nice to meet you. How's everything going? Okay. You could, I'm checking your books out behind you. Oh, oh yeah. 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 Which, oh, that's that's what they're there for. So you got something to look at if we bore you. <laughs> you won't bore me. But, uh, <laughs> I noticed Coogan's Bluff behind somebody's bookshelf there. Yeah, the great, I just put a few books that are oh, there's the great George V. Higgins. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to bring him up with you. And I just, I, I just wanted to show you this real quick. I feel like you'd appreciate this. A Larry Bird shirt. That's my, <laughs> yeah. that's my favorite player of all time, man. Here we go. You could do a lot worse. Yeah. I'm um, five, six. So basketball was never like a big thing for me. <laughs> as long yeah. as you had fun. Uh, no, I didn't. I, <laughs> uh, always the last guy picked, you know. Yep. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. But I did dress up for you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm wearing my nice sweatshirt. In, in, um, in a very nice sweatshirt, it is. I, I've got the Ugo <laughs> Boss jacket on and an, an untucked shirt and some old T-shirt <laughs> that says Echo in Rhode Island. Um, so we're, we're, you know, I, I'm treating you with respect here. I just want you to know that. And we nice. echo your respect. We feel <laughs> your respect. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Dead Headspace. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hello, Brennan. Hello, everybody. Today, we're joined by a author that many of you know, Brennan and I are big fans of, Don Winslow. Say hello, Don. Hello, Don. How's everybody? <laughs> yeah, cheap joke, but it was there. <laughs> it's it's funny when it, it comes out of the blue. Um, so you're now retired. But I'd like to back up to the very beginning um, wow. with this show. We like to kind of even with people like you, even with people like Chuck Palahniuk, there are new people that are unaware of your your you guys and your books. So we kind of want to learn about the person um, that fell in love with books. Yeah. First, uh, who who would you say? Who do you think helped you realize your dream of wanting to be a writer? Starts with my dad. Hmm. Um, I, I've said this before. Uh, my dad was a sailor who loved books, and my mom was a librarian who loved a sailor. You know, it's kind of that simple. My my dad came out of World War II. He was 17 years old. Had lied about his age. He was on Guadalcanal and all of that with the Marines. And wow. he came out and he said, um, "What he wanted to do was float around on the water, go to every zoo in Europe, and read books." Uh, and that's what he did. And my mom was a librarian. I grew up in this little uh, New England fishing village. And uh, she was the assistant librarian, a tiny library. But we always had books around. And uh, my parents uh, allowed us to read anything we wanted at any age. Hmm. You know, um, so if I wanted to read Hemingway when I was 11 years old, that was cool, you know, da, da, da. And my dad would turn me on to books. And so from a real early age, uh, I thought, boy, if, if, if I could make my living doing that, that would be the best thing in the world. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I got into reading because of my father, too. Mm -hmm. he, he, um, I want to say it's Dennis Lair. He, it's not a big part, but he was on a, 
a really big case. I forget when. I'm going to say it was the 90s because I remember it and I had to be a kid. But he was in this book called, I believe it's called The Blue Line. Um, mm -hmm. And he he got me into Alex Cross, uh, James mm -hmm. Patterson. I love yeah. the first two books. But my, yeah. my point is, and Black Mass, of course. By, sure. Um, yeah. Um, but I can totally relate. And uh, I'm just wondering if, um, you know, Brennan, actually, I'm losing. Uh, I'm kind of going to steer things in a different direction. You want to jump in first? Yeah, I, I want to jump off, you know, your your father's love of reading and into I, I've heard he had a love of storytelling and that, yeah. you know, is where <laughs> you got yours as well. And, you know, I, I'm kind of curious on your thoughts of the lost art of, you know, oral storytelling and yeah. how that influenced you as a writer. Oh, man, look, um, my old man um, was Navy guy, Navy Marines, and he'd have his shipmates over. And uh, and they were all NCOs. They weren't officers. These were, you know, blue collar military guys, if you will, <laughs> khaki collar guys. And yeah. uh, and they would, you know, have a little beer. <laughs> and uh, I would, as a child, sit under the table and they'd pretend to think I wasn't there. Uh, so I literally, literally physically sat at the feet of some of the great rock and tours in the world listening to these stories about bars in Hong Kong and, you know, captains going insane in the middle of the Pacific and stuff that had happened in Naples right after the war. And uh, later in life, yeah, I was 12. Um, I went into the theater as an actor um, quite accidentally. I, I was walking past this summer theater. It was raining. They were serving coffee and donuts. I went in to get the coffee and donuts. I ended up getting this part. And so between listening to great storytellers like my dad, but then all of a sudden I was on stage speaking lines and beginning to understand, you know, the, the sort of muscularity of words um, and dialogue and, and how that was constructed. Uh, and through osmosis learning from the greats like Neil Simon, mm. you know, mm. uh, and about the importance of silences uh, and that kind of thing. So between, you know, listening to these, these rock and tours and, and then being on stage and having to perform it, you know, I, I think that that really helped me uh, in, in being a writer. I hope so anyway. Um, I love the idea of silence and, and rhythm. Mm -hmm. um, man, this is a big question. And I feel like you could probably talk about this for hours, but how have you worked rhythm into your writing, you know, whether it was at the beginning or even over the years, what have you learned? Um, well, I learned most of it from jazz. Uh, that um, you start on a certain chord and you have to end on a certain chord or it will be unsatisfying to the, the listener, to the reader, if you will. But what happens in between is improvisation but you're moving through the chords. The, the words you use are always different. I also, and I think more in my later career, really learned the value of silence and of pausing and of allowing white space, physical white space around words. So that if, you know, I have like an action sequence and I want to grab the reader by the front of the shirt, not let him go, then that page should look pretty black, right? It needs to look dense. Sometimes I sit away from the computer 
so that I can make out not the words, but just the shapes on the page. And if it's an action sequence and it's going, that's what it needs to be on the page. But sometimes I want to focus the reader on a certain image or, or one or two words. And then I know I have to surround those by a lot of nothing, a lot of white space. I think what artists call negative space, maybe, uh, so that the eye is focused just on that. I've also learned that sometimes you need to just slow down sometimes and give the reader sort of gentler kinds of things. I, I did a book called The Force, and this is like a 30-page segment where nothing happens. It's five guys sitting around at dinner telling stories, it's pretty funny stories, actually, and they're all real. They all happened. And the editor kept taking it out, you know, because <laughs> it wasn't moving the plot ahead, and I kept putting it back in. And uh, eventually I won, you know, late in your career, you win those battles earlier in your careers, you lose those battles. But, um, uh, because I knew, I knew what was going to come up next. And I know it was going to be fast and intense and brutal. And I needed a little calmer water to mix metaphors for the reader before that segment happened, or the reader would be worn out by the time they got, you know, to the finale. So I, I think a lot about about rhythm. What yeah, the editor long answer? I know I'm rambling, but there you go. No, it's great, Brandon. I'm going to interject. Why did the editor? Do you remember why they wanted to cut that scene? Oh yeah, I could show you the memos. You know, <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, because it, it they wanted to take it out for the exact reason I wanted to leave it in. Oh, book down. Yeah, okay, it slowed the book that. down and it didn't further the plot. And I kept saying, yeah, I know all that, um, but I want to slow it down. And it reveals character. And listen, they're, they're just good stories, mm. you know, that yeah. these guys are telling. They're just good stories. And it's so funny, you know, when people talk to me about that book, a lot of what they bring up are those stories. Well, I, I mean, uh, three names that pop up for filmmakers on top of my head, Scorsese, I like Kevin Smith uh, and um, and Quentin Tarantino. Mm -hmm. A lot of their stories are, well, all their stories are really driven by, you know, uh, dialogue, good stories. Yeah. yeah. Just sitting, guys literally sitting around talking. So yeah. Yeah. that's what it made me think about. But um, I, I've been trying to ask some writers that may know, maybe you will know, but there's this guy that he is, he, he's really like a kind of sort of a very particular time of books. It's, I think the turn of the 20th century to 1940s, 1950s. Mm -hmm. And he's telling me, cause I'm, I'm big history nerd. And he was um, telling me about, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, he was telling me about how the um, soldiers over um, overseas, when they were fighting in world war two, their book, their books were limited. So they would like tear a page out, pass it along. Mm -hmm. um, and he told me that they were also big into Lovecraft. And I'm just wondering if you know anything about, soldiers during world war ii and, and their consumption of books because I, I i can't really find anything about it my dad um as i said was quite young uh, and had a high school education his two tent mates were a college librarian and a high school english teacher oh my god that's amazing <laughs> a little older they were in their 20s which was old for a marine um, yeah. Um, and uh, I got to meet one of them actually when I was a kid. And so they were turning him on to books. 
right? Awesome. They were saying, here, kid, read this, read that, you know, uh, which was which was pretty funny in, in the way that things evolve. Um, it, you talk to um, convicts, read a lot of poetry mm. because it changes all the time. Because your interpretation of it changes, and you can you can see different things in it. You know, it's the way I feel about Shakespeare. I I'm that geek that reads Shakespeare for relaxation. You know, if it's like a rainy Saturday afternoon and I have mm-hmm. a half hour or something, I'll I'll just pick up the collected works of Shakespeare and randomly open it. You know, yeah. and and read a few pages. And I've directed fifty or sixty Shakespeare productions, I suppose. Um, and it's always new to me. It's always fresh. That's yeah. amazing. Uh, but the problem with, to get back to the question you actually asked me, though, the problem with soldiers and books is the weight. Oh, oh yeah. Okay, that would be a problem. If you're infantry, <laughs> it, it's that extra pound or so really makes a difference. So they they tend not to. And they, they do tend, as you said, to rip the pages. Of course, now everything's different. Everyone's got the tablets and, you know. Uh, all that kind of stuff. But but back in those days, the problem was the weight. But there are endlessly, endless stories, probably most of them apocryphal, mm-hmm. uh, for instance, from the American Civil War uh, about soldiers' lives being saved because they had a book um, in their shirt or in their coat mm-hmm. pocket and the bullet hit the, the book. Great. And there's one story about a guy who originally said it was the Bible, but it was actually what was then considered to be a very dirty book, Tristram Shandy, uh, <laughs> 18th century English novel. It was considered very risque uh, and saved his life uh, when the book was hit instead of his heart. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I got one more war question. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm, I told you I'm into history. I'm particularly like listeners will know this. I'm particularly obsessed with like the Korean war era and mm-hmm. what he has to do with world war two. For those that aren't aware is uh, his success over in the Pacific theater. I was wondering if your father or their friends had any stories about MacArthur. I know he wasn't the big general <laughs> in, in Korea uh, that he was in world war two, but yeah. Yeah. You know, my dad was a Marine and of course MacArthur was army. And so there's an instant dislike. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, that's baked in. Yeah. Uh, I don't recall my dad having a lot of things to say about MacArthur. Uh, and I certainly don't recall him having a lot of kind things to say about MacArthur. You know, the army was on Guadalcanal. Yeah. Uh, famously, you know, with Norman Mailer and, and James Jones. James Jones, in my opinion, being one of the great, greatly underrated novelists uh, in America, his World War II trilogy, I, I, I think is just one of the best things ever. Um, and, and to me, compares very, very favorably to Mailer's. So the army was certainly in Guadalcanal, and, and certainly there's a literary presence for that, you know, mm-hmm. the naked and the dead uh, in the thin red line. Uh, but oh, yeah. yeah. I, I don't have a lot to say about MacArthur. Now, having said that, you know, I have a master's degree in military history. So he's to have to teach that stuff and, you know, teach Korea and all of that. <laughs> Great names on it, you know. So. I actually didn't know that. I mean, that's why I got my um, my grandfather's uh, hat. Oh, see that. Yeah. The dog tags are real dog tags. It's from his friend. Yeah. Um, but I could go on and on about that. I did not know that you were a military 
uh, that, that big into the military. I, I, wow. Um, well, I, I have a, uh, this is what drove me to being a writer. Cause I have two degrees that make you a hardcore unemployable. I have sure. a, a bachelor's degree in African history and a master's degree in military history. So actually I'm an expert in African military history, but there is no such job. Um, and so when I was a teaching assistant, it was in a basic U.S. military history class, uh, mostly populated by ROTC uh, students. Uh, and that professor, a very famous, in fact, military historian, Pete Meslovsky, is still a dear, dear friend of mine. Uh, he was just visiting here last week. I, um, I just want to show you this one book. I want to see if you've read it. I don't talk about it on the show because it's not really applicable, but uh, I love Jeff Shara. Yeah, I have read it. Yeah. This is a great book, too. But Jeff Shara's father, for those that may be interested, he wrote the book that was turning to feel the dreams. So kind of neat. His father was a writer, too. But, um, Brennan, I'm talking a lot. Why don't you take over, buddy? No, no sweat, man. Um, all right. So I do want to I do want to kind of change tact here. Um, right. I want to talk about writing different locales. Now, mm-hmm. you've lived in you're a well-traveled man. You've lived in a lot of different places. <laughs> but yeah. yeah. You have, you, there's no way you've lived everywhere. And one thing that, you know, really strikes me about a lot of your books is just how central the locations are mm-hmm. to the plot, to the characters mm-hmm. and to the in- reader's enjoyment of the story. You know, I'm thinking uh, Providence in Rhode Island is an obvious one, San Diego, Hawaii, and, you know, obviously mm-hmm. parts of Mexico. Yeah. So how do you get in that headspace? What kind of research do you do? And what kind of advice would you give to people looking to kind of achieve that authenticity? Yeah, time, time, time. No substitute for it. You know, uh, look, I, I fall in love with locations. I really do. I, I, I can remember as if it were yesterday to employ a cliche. The first time I saw the Pacific Coast Highway in Southern California. I, I felt instantly in love and I still am. By what's the, the first what's the first thing that you you can picture in your head? Like what's the first detail? Point Reef Beach, um, just a couple of miles north of Laguna Beach, California. And you come down this hill uh, and the ocean and these bluffs just explode in front of you. Sounds awesome. Uh, and then I drove into the town of Laguna. You know, I made a film called Savages there and said a lot of things there and thought, I'm I'm fucking whoops, I'm I'm freaking you in. You can love. swear. <laughs> and uh you know, it's it's funny. Um I uh I've driven the PCH thousands of times now, I suppose. I'm excited every time. Wow. Every time still. Um Talk about Rhode Island. You know, I left there when I was 17 um, and I had to go back for visits and things, you know, but really for only lengths of time when when my mom started to need, you know, care and my wife and I would go back to the to the old house to take care of my mom. Uh, I fell in love with the place in ways that I hadn't as a kid. Now I'm as excited driving down, you know, Matunic Beach Road every time I get I get stoked. So the advice you know that I give to writers is is get out on your feet, walk it as much as you can, because little things will will come to you walking in ways that they won't when you're driving, you know. And just spend the time, spend the time. You know, obviously, I mean, you can get on a plane, you can't get into time machine. 
So there, there are some places I wrote about, you know, like Vietnam in 1956. There's no point in going to Vietnam, no point in going to Saigon, right? Because it doesn't look like that anymore. And so I, I remember, you know, spending months uh, creating, recreating the city of Saigon in 1956 mm. uh, through pictures, through Life magazine. And I had a big, big map. On, on a big rolling piece of paper that I would roll out on my mother's um, front porch floor. And I'd glue photos of this hotel, that drugstore, this restaurant, you know, so that when my character walked out of his hotel and turned right, I'd have a sense of what he saw, you know. And then, of course, you read a, a lot of history books uh, to get a sense of these places in those times. But, you know, if, if you're writing contemporary or roughly contemporary, you know, um, you just got to get out there. You just got to get out there and, and spend the time. There's, there's no substitute for that. I've done that in my hometown due to like, I forget why. I think I just stole my folks. Oh, I want to walk years ago when I still lived in Massachusetts. And um, yeah, I can relate because I've driven by it countless amounts of times, like certain locations in, in, a, in my hometown I grew up since i was three mm-hmm. so i'm like in my late teens at this point and and i was just like oh i've never noticed that house there before so that, yeah. that's i'm just reiterating because it's it i forget where i heard this but once i started to about 10 well 10 years ago when i knew i wanted to be a novelist um my wife opened my eyes up to that and uh i heard this quote where if you look at the world through a narrator's eyes in your regular life whatever mm-hmm. you're doing you're going to start to pick apart details and it's going to make everything more interesting. So that that's kind of yeah. what I'm going through in my mind. Uh, Brennan, um, what do you got to, what do you got to say, sir? No, I, I think that that's absolutely astute. There's just no, ex, uh, there's no substitute for lived in experience. You can't sit in a chair. I mean, you can technically recreate through internet archives and stuff, but I'm, you know, beyond just setting, you're not going to be able to, get down reactions and body language without interacting with the world. Um, And, you know, like you said, you could, you could, you could recreate, you know, with time magazine photos Mm -hmm. and stuff. But if you're writing about a culture that is outside of your small little town, Mm -hmm. then the way that people speak to each other, the language they use, the language they don't use, the space they Mm -hmm. use uh, it's, there's not going to be a substitute for that experience. And man, if there was one that came close, it's going to be copious amounts of time. Um, but I think it, it pays off. Well, I just, I, I'm trying to imagine a Don Winslow book that is just the characters without that expansive setting. And I can't do it. It's, it's, it's part and parcel. It's, it's too impactful on character. It's, it's hard to separate character from place. I, I I don't know that you can do it. Mm. You know, I really don't because we are such products of our environment. Mm. You know, um, I mean, I, I think that the the first and most important element of of any novel, but especially crime novels, is character. You know, you can come up with as many nifty things that happen as you want, but if if people don't care about the character, they're not going to care about what happens. They just won't. Yeah, and then very much a part of that is that sense of place. You know, I think it was the the British playwright, Peter Schaffer, who called it the small gods of place. 
you know, and, and like I, I drive through Solana Beach where we used to live, uh, a northern beach town in San Diego County. And, you know, it, it's not Solana Beach, it's Mitch's Surf Shop, right? You know, it's the pizza port, you know, it's it's the hot dog truck on that particular corner. Mm. Uh, those gods of place, you know, that, that to me mean an awful lot. Um, and, you know, I, I did it so blatantly, again, going back to that book called The Force, where this cop gets up in the morning and walks through his neighborhood. I mean, you know, how cliche, how trite can you be? But, you know, that that was important to me to bring the reader right into that neighborhood and into those gods of place, you know, and, and then we could start to understand this guy. Yeah, well, and it definitely I, makes I, sense. I think that, you know, in my own writing, too, like even when I'm creating a town, those gods of place like show their faces like if you are, you know, putting a soul into a small town that you've, you know, kind of cobbled out of the back of your mind, then you can't have your character walk by a pizza shop. It has to have a name and it has to have a name that fits the you know the the way that the parking spaces are angled against and not like in a parking lot has to you know reflect the person who owns it whatever it is yeah um and i do find myself spending more time than i suspect i should you know trying to perfect those little details but it's so refreshing to hear oh god those matter (laughs) they absolutely they absolutely matter you know I, i think another one of the greatest american writers is richard russo um, you know, and Richard Russo takes you to those little towns in upstate New York. Mm. You live with them. You live in those towns while you're reading those books, you know, uh, and it's those it's those telling details and the details are everything, you know, and and, and again, it's those little moments sometimes. <coughs> Sorry that you want to put a lot of white space around, you know, that, that show, OK, you know, it's that rusty gate. You know, it's the the weird angle parking spot that you you alluded to, you know, a certain smell, you know, I, of all the things that are hardest to describe, I think smells are the hardest to describe. And yet, to us as human beings, they're probably one of the most evocative of the senses, mm. you know, uh, what it smelled like, you know, I, 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 I know within two miles of the beach when it's low tide, not right. that I can see the beach, but I can smell it. Mm-hmm. You know, anyway. definitely good, good, blah, good blah, point. Blah. Um, Brennan, I'm going to steer us in a different direction. I don't want to cut sure. you off, though. Uh, no, you're good. So um, I asked Peter, Peter Straub this. I talked to Joe Lansdale about this, and I assume, never talked to Stephen King, but I've heard in interviews from him that their wives were, I guess the best way I can describe it, um, without having an editor here is that their wives are the um, main driving force for their success. And I, I feel like that's me too. Yeah, yeah. Um, all for different reasons, but you know, like Steven with him throwing Carrie away and, and Tabitha saving it. But my point, my long about wave. It's asked, a story, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I <laughs> formed modern horror. So that would be, right. I don't know what the domino effect would have <laughs> been. But I'm wondering, because you, when I went to the reading that you had last year, mm-hmm. I, th- I know you talked about your wife driving through certain areas, but the way yeah. you talked about your wife is something that uh, genuinely gets me like all teary eyed because you love your wife. You really mm-hmm. do. And that's, that yeah, sounds really crazy. Do, yeah. You're, you're yeah. her husband, but 
I mean, you really love your wife and it's very touching. So it makes me wonder if you attribute the main driving force or the success through the longevity of it all. Yeah. Would you would you say that's probably your wife? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Look, you know, um, I've been married 36, 37 years in a few weeks Mm. and it's been a blast and she's adventurous. You know what I mean? And not scared and not scared to marry a broke writer, <laughs> a broke writer, you know? Um, and I, <laughs> I mean, when, when we first got, I mean, we got engaged in Africa, right? Because Whoa, I was, really? <laughs> yeah, I was cobbling together a living and I was a, a photographic safari guide in Africa and a PI, and I'm directing Shakespeare plays in the summer in Oxford, right? That should be a book. <laughs> and so our, she came over to Kenya at the end of one of the safari seasons. And the, the first night we're there, there's an elephant stampede through the camp. Holy shit. Serious, serious shit, right? Lethal. Yeah. Potentially lethal. And um, it's over, and we're standing outside. This is in the middle of the night. And uh, I'm looking at her and her eyes are like saucers. And uh, I thought, well, there's that relationship. And she looks at me and she says, that was so cool. <laughs> Marry me. you know. And I proposed with a, a string of, of seashell beads on a beach off the coast of Kenya. Uh, and then instantly was transferred to China. And we didn't see each other for months because I'm hiking around bamboo jungles in China and stuff. But, you know, for years, man, look, I, I wrote a book called Power of the Dog. Yeah. And after it was published, I had $37 in the bank. I, it's so weird to. The word is not the right word. Brennan, you're smarter than me, so fill in the blanks after. But it's so strange for me to think of like when I love interviews. That's why I started the show. That I just love listening to who the people are. And it's it's just bizarre thinking of who you are and where you are at your level in your career now. And then you're talking about where you started. It's just it gets me pumped up. I don't know what words to use, but this just a there's so much story there. Brennan, I, I came am, I came home from China and she was selling blood. Holy shit. For I mean, just a few weeks wait, for us to live, you know. Uh, so yeah, she's a big part of this, but you know, it's, it's not just that, you know, it's not, I mean, there are times it happened to me the other day, uh, where I'll just look at her or she'll say something quirky and, and my heart just stops. Oh, it's amazing. It, just, it just stops. I'm just like amazed, you know, wow. uh, you know, uh, I, I think, you know, look, you, you fall in love every day. If if you have a relationship that lasts that long, do you know what I mean? You you mm-hmm. do, you fall in love every day. Um man, I, I tell me to pass if you don't want this, but uh I know you're retired, but someone's gotta write your biography or you gotta do an autobiography one day, man. It oh could be goodness. me or anybody else, man. That's the, that's the, you know, I've never, people talk about, well, you know, you're a writer to express yourself. No, I'm not. I, I have no interest in expressing myself. Um, spit that coffee out. You know, yeah, I what it. I want is to tell good stories. Mm-hmm. And I want to tell stories about things that have nothing to do with me. 
you know, I might use some of my experience sometimes or, you know, things that I've seen or, or whatever, but Don Winslow's not interesting. What I hope are interesting are, are the stories, you know, and, and the characters and, and maybe some of the issues, you know, that, that we bring up, but yeah, I have no, you know, no interest. In, I, you know, I don't know, maybe one day I'll do a little memoir, but it will be specific. It might be about like the travels that Gene and I went on, you know, or the, the year we walked a thousand miles together, you know, or, or something like that, um, which was really fun to do. We decided one year we're just going to walk a thousand miles together Wow! over the course of yeah. the calendar. It, was, it really isn't that much, isn't that hard to do. It was a lot of fun. Sounds really neat. Yeah, and um, the love that you have for your wife obviously is different when it comes to your fans, but just uh, this sounds super creepy. Uh, at your book reading, I was just, I mean, at your book reading, I'm a big dude, so I know that like you made a comment that I was being patient, but like I just wanted to not feel rushed and I got a thing with people, mm-hmm. but but I couldn't help, I was like five feet away from you, I couldn't help but just you, you actually, this is so crazy to say, but it, there's a lot of bigger names that just don't give this vibe off. You actually care. And I had an uncle that passed away that did this mm-hmm. Portuguese guy from Taunton grab your arm, not in a friendly way and just actually listen. Yeah. And that's what you did with every single reader. And I think that's going to forgive the morbidness of this, but that's going to outlive you. And that'll be your legacy. My yeah. experience from talking to people like Rich Shizmar and whoever, you know, other mutual friends, I think that you're, um, your, your love for people is actually going to be your best legacy. Quality. That's nice of you to say, man. I have a lot of Portuguese friends in Rhode Island. <laughs> they're great. Their food's they're food's amazing. Great. Unlike our Austinics, man. They're the best, man. I, uh, <laughs> two of my best, best friends in Rhode Island, uh, Bill McEnany, who's Portuguese despite the name, and uh, Tony Souza, you know, classic Portuguese. Souza. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They, yeah. Um, yeah. Brennan, <laughs> Brennan, Take us away, sir. I was gonna say I'm in uh, I'm in Massachusetts, just outside of Fall River, and I oh, probably okay. know at least 35 people. <laughs> at least Tony Sousa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tony Sousa. Probably know 35 Tony Sousas. Exactly. Yeah. In Fall yeah. River. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was in Bridgewater. It was just like Portuguese, <laughs> Italian, and Irish for the most yeah, part. You know, it, I always joked. You know, we moved down to the, the country in Rhode Island when I was about 10, I think. But prior to that, we lived close to Providence, and we used to joke we were the only people within five blocks whose names didn't begin or end with a vowel, you know. <laughs> yeah. right. I want to take us to uh, your final trilogy. So starting with City on Fire and about to put out yeah. City of Dreams. Yeah, yeah. Um, two phenomenal books and you I were uh, kind enough to, or somebody was kind enough to grace us with the opening 25 pages or so of uh mm-hmm. city in city ruins. ruins was it was it ashes at some point i keep switching yeah, I think, yeah I, yeah i did too <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's, i got that's, city of ashes online here that's yeah. that's why the confusion uh now i'll tell you once you type something or say something it never goes away anymore yep. you know so uh it's city in ruins is, is the yep title. yep so uh i would love to hear Basically, just a little elevator pitch for anybody looking into these about what the trilogy is about. You know, maybe give us a little bit on book one and two. Sure. Look, I 
I started this damn thing 28 years ago, right? Because uh, I had this idea. I, I read the Iliad late later in life than most people do. And I thought I already know this story. I, I watched it play out in Rhode Island and Massachusetts. You guys are younger than I am, but you would have too where you grew up. And uh, and I thought even back then, could I could I take that and make a contemporary crime story, a contemporary crime epic? I always knew this was going to be a trilogy, by the way, unlike my drug books, which were accidentally a trilogy. Yeah, <laughs> I quit after each one. Right. Uh, and um, so uh, the books, you know, basically follow Aeneas, the character of Aeneas, the hero, obviously, of the Aeneid. But that begins in the Iliad. He's a very minor player in the Iliad, but a fascinating one. And I, I loved his arc. Uh, you know, this is embarrassing, but it was only when I was sort of in the middle of maybe book two that I realized it was also somewhat my arc. You know, Aeneas leaves New England when he's young and he spends 20 years wandering and then he tries to build an empire. Uh, I don't have an exactly analogous life experience, but I left New England when I was 17 because there was nothing there for me. The economy when I left was just shattered, you know, classic Rust Belt area uh, and spent years, as you alluded to, traveling and wandering, trying to cobble together a living, you know, trying to put food on the table for, you know, my wife and my kid. Uh, and then eventually had, you know, a, a small measure of success that, that allowed me kind of financial stability and, and the ability to sit in one place and write. And, and so, I, you know, I started to realize it in some ways, you know, really identifying with this guy and identifying with this story. So, you know, it's it's about a guy who loses a, is a loser in a crime war and has to run, uh, and is desperately just trying to find a place to put his feet, uh, and eventually does. But then he has to protect it. Yeah, That's I of- absolutely love the parallels to that kind of Greek mm-hmm. mythology. Um, I don't know if mythology is the right word, but no, you know it's what I'm it's the exact word. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I always think of like uh, chimeras and minotaurs when I say mm-hmm. mythology, but, yeah. um, and what I love about it is it's so easy to forget. You, mm-hmm. you get partway into these books and it's, you know, uh, it's a, it's a mob epic. It's a coming of age. It's this, it's that, it's the other thing. And then when you do see, you know, even if you're not super familiar with, uh, or you haven't read the Iliad in a long time, or you haven't read the Iliad, you recognize the pieces of it. You recognize the parts just from popular culture. Mm-hmm. And the way they're woven in there is just exciting. And forgive me for saying genius at times. I, I, I just, you, 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 you love to see it. And you also, you know, one thing I learned as a writer is you like to make your reader feel smart. And when they can, you know, pick out that detail and say, ah, I see what he did there. Yeah. Um, it's 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 great stuff. Um, now, what I'm kind of curious about, you said this has been around or been in the pipeline for 28 years, and it's got you know, d- despite just the timing, it's got this big class. I mean, even the, the the book covers almost kind of resemble Puzo's The Godfather. Mm-hmm. Was 
Was this always kind of built up to be your kind of magnum opus? I think so. In my mind, not, not in the world's mind. Believe <laughs> me, they, they wouldn't let me publish this book for a long, long time, you know. Uh, but uh, I think maybe finally you come to a point in your life and come to a point in your career where, you know, people say, okay, you know, we'll take a chance on you. Um, yeah, look, it was, yes, is the, is the quick answer to that, always. Um, look, I'm very much a crime writer, very much a crime fiction writer that uh, proudly, you know, in that place. Uh, maybe I told this story, but, you know, there was a, a French interviewer who once asked, and in not a particularly friendly way, if I thought that as a crime writer, I lived in a literary ghetto. Um, motorcycle just went by. Uh, I'm sitting in an old gas station, by the way, it is now my office. And That's uh, awesome. Yeah, it's kind of fun. And uh, I said, yes, and I love my neighborhood, you know, uh, and I love my neighbors. I wouldn't be anywhere else. Uh, having said that, you know, once the Greeks and the Romans were done, frankly, we invented nothing in terms of literature, with the exception maybe of Shakespeare and, and Don Quixote. But all the great, great themes that we we use in my beloved crime genre had already been used, had already been invented um, and done in poetry for the most part in, in drama to a, a slightly lesser extent, which was also, of course, in poetry. So um, looking at those great works and then looking at James Joyce's Ulysses, you know, one of the, the great, great novels and a very, very difficult, dense novel to read and to understand. But uh, I didn't invent this idea. You know, James Joyce did that wonderful thing of taking, you know, the entire Odyssey in a single day in a single city and, you know, crossing Dublin with these two characters. Uh, that inspired me. I try to read Ulysses, you know, every couple of years. Uh, and uh, and so, yeah, I thought this is a big risk. You know, this is a huge, I shouldn't use that word because somebody else does it a lot. Um huge project uh but uh we don't like him either thank <laughs> you. uh that i finally thought after years of kind of failing at it picking it up and putting it down and being afraid of it but being tempted by it that that i could pull it off and you know again i'd be the last person to judge whether i did or not you know well, I'm two thirds through, and so far you're batting a thousand. Well, thank um, you. Now, when you write, the first part of it takes place primarily in Rhode Island and does kind of deal with the younger part of Danny Ryan's life. Yeah. And then he goes west, and we'll leave it vague uh, yeah. for people who have not read it yet. But um, what was the different approach, you know, because you, you grew up in Rhode Island, you know, there's yeah. got to be a little yeah. bit of you inadvertently or maybe very advertently versus writing book two. Yeah. Yeah. Big difference, you know, big difference. But again, you know, it's, it's, it's funny guys, because I, I again, I didn't realize this for a long time. You know, I kind of reinvented myself in California too. If, if you look at my books, you know, I wrote the first five or six living on the East Coast, actually in Connecticut, not Rhode Island, little New England village, Riverton up in the Berkshire Hills, uh, and, but mostly traveling the world during that time. And my first five books were written on buses, planes, tents, you know, Chinese monasteries, no joke. <laughs> uh, and then I get to California, my career's in a trench, man, it is flatlined. 
um, and uh, riding a train from Orange County to, to downtown LA to Raymond Chandler country. Cause I was a PI <laughs> and I'm bored out of my mind with what I was writing. And I hit the delete key and started writing in the present tense instead of the past tense. And it changed everything for me. Oh, shit. for me, complete reinvention. And so like Danny, I went to the West coast and reinvented myself and like I said, you know, I found the, the Pacific Coast Highway from Newport Beach down to the Mexican border and fell in love. And I'm still in love. Uh, and I started to hear that California way of speaking and that California way of being. Now, this was a bit difficult because you're taking a very New England guy, a very Rhode Island guy and sticking him out on the beach in San Clemente. He's not going to be talking dude, you know, <laughs> he's not going to be talking surf bonics. You know, he still has that Rhode Island thing. And yet some of the rhythms of the narrative needed to change, hmm. you know, because now you are on the beach and, and you are in the sunshine, you know, uh, and that, that changes your head. You know, it really does. So in reality, I had to go through the opposite process because when I, I got serious about writing the first book and really decided to finish it, I had to learn Rhode Island again. That's, I had to, to that's consider, cool. you know, because by this time I've been in Cali, you know, uh, for 20, some, close to 30 years. And, you know, I'm a lotus-eating, sun-worshipping San Diegan, you know, <laughs> I have, you know, <laughs> all my sandwiches are in tortillas, right? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I had to go back and sit in towns and the fishing ports and the bars and the restaurants and with old friends, like the Portuguese, yeah, uh, and, and listen to that dialect. It took me a while to pick it back up. When uh, my wife says, when I'm tired, that that my accent changes <laughs> and that Bobby becomes Bobby. And, you know, <laughs> when, when I, uh, I, move, I I live in South Jersey now, I moved here in 2015. That's where my wife's from. Mm -hmm. And I bring that up because the first time that I came down here, like moved down here and then went back up to hang out with my friends. I just sat and listened. I usually talk a shitload. Like I'm usually a motor mouth, but I just listened because mm -hmm. down here, there's not one set accent right up there. Up there <laughs> it's heavy, but my, my wife literally cannot understand my parents at times. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, get <it. laughs> so. I get it. Listen, I think one of the most valuable things we do and we don't do it nearly enough as writers is listen. True. Wow. You know, yeah. There are times I have to tell myself, Winslet, just shut up. <laughs> shut the F up and listen. Let, let the story come to you. Let the words and the dialect come to you, you know, and be quiet. Just be quiet. And, you know, I've gotten a lot out of that. Uh, there's a theme of silence again. Mm, there you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Listen, very useful. Very, very useful, you know. I'd like to kind of uh, pull back. Well, actually not pull back. We're still on the topic of city on fire. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that it's being adapted 
So I'm just, and I'm not going to ask specifics, but yeah, I can't tell you specifics. No, 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 no I, I understand uh, probably NDAs and all that, but um, just like as a fan, like seriously, it's not because we're talking about like, I generally love that book because growing up, uh, I became very like a lot of kids locally became very interested in, you know, Whitey Bulger or uh, the mm-hmm. Summerhill gang, or mm-hmm. it was, I mean, I'm, I'm very much so Irish. I'm also Italian and, and it was uh, Irish Italian mobs and yeah. you know, whoever, <laughs> whoever yeah. came in third place. <laughs> right. um, and I've been waiting for, for a movie like this and, and a book too, that wasn't another rehash of Whitey Bulger. And this is a, right. this is totally unique of that. So I'm just saying like, as, as like some some random you know New England boy is very excited to see this. My dad, I I think I told you, my dad uh, loved it. Your book, um, I yeah. let him borrow it, the non signed one. No wait, I had <laughs> one signed for him. I gave him his, and he loved it. Um, and that's kind of cool because like he's not super into horror except for like older 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 Stephen King. Yeah. So it's nice when we get to like talk about books that we both enjoy. Yeah, um, that's a nice thing. Yeah. Uh, Brennan, I got one other thing I'd like to talk about. Is there anything that you want to discuss as far as these books go? I, I'm wondering what you can tell us about book three, specific, or what you can tease about book three, even though it's not out for about a year. 2024. Um, there you go specifically in regards to you know with this being kind of your magnum opus those are those are my words we don't have to you know (laughs) my drug books i used to refer to as my magnus dopus by the way (laughs) perfect (laughs) um now with this kind of following not you know uh an outline per se but uh, a rough you know idea with the you know iliad um, are people going to be surprised by book three? Yes. They're going to be very surprised by book three. Uh, um, look, you know, I always knew where I was going with this trilogy, not in the specific. The specifics gave me endless problems and, you know, trial and error and mostly error. Uh, but I always knew roughly where I was headed because I was following the life of Aeneas. And Aeneas is the mythical founder of the Roman Empire, right? Well, that that troubled me for years. I couldn't figure it out. Oh, shit. Now I'm wondering. What, what do I do with it? Do you know what I mean? I, I know book one and I know book two, but book three, shit. I, <laughs> what empire is he going to found? I, I don't want to do a drug empire. Don't, you know, da, 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 what am I going to do with this dude? And, uh, And then it finally hit me. Like, where can you build anything at all you want to build? Las Vegas. Oh. What what town has a mobbed up history? Oh, yes. (laughs) Like in spades. Las Vegas. And I know some of those guys, right? So... um, when I that hit me, and, and here's the other problem in the in the Aeneid, without getting you know overly geeky, you know the big conflict is over Aeneas stealing the the potential bride of a rival. He basically arrives in town and he goes to marry this princess that another guy was going to marry, and that causes the big conflict. Well, that wasn't going to work, right? That would just been stupid, you know. I can't do that. Uh, 
but I couldn't figure out an alternative for a long time. And I, by long time, I mean years, by the way. And then, then it occurred to me, you know, dummy, get, go sideways. You know, it's, it's always good. I think if you point true North and then kick the compass <laughs> you know I mean? so that the needle's like going that way. And that's what I did. And I decided that the, the conflict's not going to be over him stealing someone else's fiance. It's going to be him stealing the hotel that somebody else wanted to buy. Ooh. And he buys it first and kicks off a battle. Damn, that's the story. That's the story. And then also, you know, I wanted to follow the rest of the characters through. Right. Like, where did people go after the Trojan War? You know, (laughs) famously, you know, the Iliad's only the middle part of that war. It starts years in. I didn't know that. It starts in media res is the, you know, in Latin technical term. And it ends, the poem ends long before the story ends. The, the Trojan horse is not in the Iliad. It's in the Aeneid. It's Aeneas telling the, the woman he's in love with about his life. And he describes it. So I was fascinated by, oh, okay, everybody leaves Troy. Where do they go? What happens to him? We know Odysseus, Ulysses, wanders. But I wanted to follow that guy. But what is the equivalent you know, of that with an Italian gangster? running and driving around the country. Where does he end up? You know, Ulysses gets stuck in a single place, bewitched by a woman for six years. What does that look like? Hmm. Uh, I wanted to follow some of the other characters, you know, um, Cassie in in book number one, you know, the, the tragic Cassandra of the Iliad who had the gift of prophecy uh, given to her in air quotes as recompense for Apollo raping her as a child. Uh, What happens to her? What happens to Agamemnon and Menelaus, you know, Peter and Paul Moretti, the the Italian mobsters from the first book? Well, what happens to those characters coming out of Troy in Greek literature is fascinating. And I know I'm getting overly enthused here, but I'm overly. Oh, no, no. It's great. You, You take those stories you put them in black and white and put a trumpet behind them. They are noir novels. Shit. Jim Thompson could write them, right? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely noir novels. Yeah. You know, guy goes home from the war. His wife blames him for their daughter's death. And she and her lover kill him in the bathtub. That's not a noir plot. That's from the Oresteia, three Greek tragic plays that explain what happened to Agamemnon after he won the Trojan War. He's almost instantly murdered. So I I wanted to follow all that through. Ulysses, Odysseus famously goes home, right? Finally makes it home to kill all the suitors of his wife. That's not going to work in a contemporary crime novel. Can't do that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but what's the, what's the problem? Well, the problem in book number three is that these gangsters are taking the little businesses that he left his wife to support herself and their son and draining them, sucking the money out of them. And he goes home to fix that. Mm. You know, so so the, it was great fun uh, to be able to look at those other stories. And let, let me tell these other stories in a contemporary crime way. And 
you feeling now sorry for yourselves because you asked one question and Winslow just no I'm riding the wave man 20 minute (laughs) you know monologue but yeah so that's that's kind of book three so most very excited for it Nebraska Rhode Island California all over the place wow that's excellent man I'm really looking forward to that one so I hope people like it but they will be quite surprised I think you know um I would like to ask you to tell us about Don's book club. <laughs> yeah, it's something we've started to launch, you know, and uh, and continue at it. Like, look, you know, obviously, like you guys, I love books. And and I love like being a, you know, a disciple for books, an ambassador mm-hmm. for books. You know, if I love a book, I want everybody to love the book. I'm obnoxious that way. You know, uh, my wife. It says once a safari guide, always a safari guide. You, you know, you always want to show people a leopard, you know, <laughs> whether they want to see it or not. <laughs> I'm like that with Peter Strub's Coco. There you go. Right. And it's like, yeah, I, I want people to know about these books. And and I have a little bit of a platform. You know? Yeah. yeah. So I, I like to share that. And, and And listen, you know, authors should support authors. You know? Yeah. Yeah, it's just the ethics of it. Uh, it's not only fun; it's right, you know. And T.J. Newman is one of you. Yeah, I, I would just for those that are unaware of her or her two books that are just crushing it. What do you want to say about about yeah, her and those books? You know, one of the really fun things about being in this genre, one of the really nice things about this genre, is that ninety nine percent of the authors you're going to like as people. Yeah. You are, you know, uh, there's very little backbiting and backstabbing in the crime genre. Uh, I rarely have ever seen it, you know, Teej is, um, you know, look, she was a flight attendant for years and years and, you know, trying to write a novel and, and everyone and their dog was telling her no. And then, and then Shane told her, yes, Shane, my agent, our agent. Who's a you know a list screenwriter by the way? Yeah, most people know in his own Armageddon's writing. one of one of the Armageddon one of many <laughs> shafts. <laughs> one of those um, tiny movies, <laughs> yeah, Avatar, the Avatar, yeah. Yeah, 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 little you know little indie movies that shot so might have heard might have heard of them before in a parking <laughs> lot somewhere. Yeah, yeah, you know, um, great guy by the way, great guy, and so uh, you know, T just 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 fun and smart and i'm a little angry at her because i have to get on airplane soon and she (laughs) freaks me out to do that you know it's like you know about to go swimming and read jaws you know uh but yeah that uh, blurb that you did jaws at forty thousand feet like that's i want that blurb one day not forty thousand feet but like jaws is that's one of the few movies that crushes the shit out of the book yeah it does. The first actually. chapter of Jaws is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, listen, Jaws is a good book. Jaws is a good book. And it? it is, but the movie's so much better. It's weird. It was just Saturday <laughs> night. I was talking with a surfing buddy about the summer that Jaws came out. Yeah. And and people being afraid to get in the water. And we were all laughing at it. It's like, they've always been there. <laughs> like, and then there's a shark sighting. Well, that's just because someone saw it. You know? <laughs> shark sighting you they've been you know they've been out there a lot longer than we have you know yeah. tj newman very very gifted writer and as as good a writer she is she's that good a person which makes her success 
all the more fun. Oh yeah. 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 You'll, you'll love to see people like that make it, you know, mm. it just puts a smile on your face and, you know, again, two other, three other names off the top of my head that you've directly, I've seen you directly talk super highly of is as a Cosby, Eli Craner and uh, James Kestrel of five December's. Yeah, yeah. All good writers, good people, you know. So look, it's you know, it's nice to have that platform. And and it's nice to give back. You know, yeah. I, I I can't begin to name the the list of writers a little older than me, if if you can imagine such a thing, that you know, <laughs> um that were so kind to me earlier in my career. And now is Stephen King among them, you know. Hmm. Uh, and and gosh, you know uh, Robert Parker and and James Elroy. And- Robert Parker, though, that's a that's a big one, especially for a New England writer, man. Come on now, you <laughs> know <laughs> that's my dad's favorite writer, by the way. That's awesome. It's a lot of people's favorite writer, and for yeah. very good reasons. <laughs> yeah. You know, listen, I was reading, uh, you know, him long before I became a writer. I mean, th- mm. those were my inspirations. You know, Lawrence Block, Robert Parker, oh, John yeah. D. McDonald, uh, Charlie Williford. Um, God, you know, George Teacher V. Higgins, Stark, oh, wrong, wrong George V. Higgins, Higgins. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's the, the best crime novel ever written still is The Friends of Eddie Coyle. And, oh, yeah. Good movie. A, great, great movie. Peter Boyle, man. How can you go Peter wrong? Boyle, Peter Boyle. Yeah. And, uh, and, and of course, Robert Mitchum. And yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a great, great goddamn movie. Yeah. yeah. I, but those, I, you know, listen, people have been so kind to me mm. and, and no reason to be. You know, um, and so it's uh, it's nice to pay it back a little bit. Absolutely. Um, I got one more question, Brennan, um, but I'm going to go to you. I, I just got a question that I would love to hear. Don, uh, is it answer. is it as is it as fun as the, your last one? Because I like I, I have one that I really wanted to throw out there, but it's kind of a downer. So like maybe you could take it back and and, and, and make it fun afterward. <laughs> no <Go> pressure <laughs> so yeah, it's not a downer hit me with the downer and then we'll try yeah, to, to go out yeah, yeah. mine's not a downer so let's go with your perfect perfect right. we got we got a plan um don when we a lot of the people we talk to most of the people we talk to are horror writers and mm-hmm. you know they're always going to draw criticism from readers or outside observers who you know kind of accuse them of well why do you want to write about such horrible things why do you want to why do you want to focus on the negative uh and you know of course does that make you of that mindset and despite the fact that you are not known as a horror writer if you read the power of the dog trilogy there is some of the most gruesome graphic awful stuff that you yeah, will yeah. read in between two covers in there. Yeah. So I, I'm wondering how you interpret and deal with thoughts like that. Yeah. I don't know how many hours you have or how long an answer you, you want, <laughs> but I've, I've grabbed. I got a comfy chair. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> um, I've grappled with that question an awful lot. Um, and there, there are things that sometimes I wonder if I should have written them or not. And then there are things that I know for a fact that happened in Mexico in those years that I didn't write because believe it or not, they were too horrible. Uh, Here's the deal. I had to make a a pretty clean decision in books like dog power, the dog and, and cartel, which is even rougher about how to handle those issues. Those books started because I read about a massacre in Mexico one morning that I could not wrap my head around. Now, 
seven years later, that massacre would not have made the newspapers. The violence had gotten so much worse. In all those three books, Dog, Cartel, and The Border, there's not a single violent incident that didn't actually happen. So you have to make a decision. And it's a tough decision. And the decision is, do I sanitize that violence? Which I think in some ways is more obscene than the decision that I made, which is to display it realistically and show it to people the way it is. Um, there are times I wonder if I made the right decision. Uh, but I wanted particularly the American public and the European public to see what was happening in Mexico and what were the real consequences of our appetite for drugs and, and the war on drugs. And novelists can do that in a way that, that journalists can't necessarily because we're allowed to invent the interior lives and, and to get people emotionally invested in characters to whom sometimes terrible things happen, but they were all true. Now, I was on that beat for 26 years. You know, I quit after each one of those books because they were too tough. Yeah. And came back because I felt guilty about not writing them. As I went on, I began to realize that I was running the risk of inuring the reader to the violence. That after a while, the graphic descriptions of the violence meant nothing. In the same way that you saw, you know, in Juarez and other places, people just walking by bodies that no longer had meaning. Yeah. And so I began to write less of the actual violent event and more of the reaction to it. So more, not always, but more and more, I would not write the event, but I would write the reporter that came onto the scene the cop that came onto the scene, what the emotional reaction of the survivors were and that kind of thing, because I, I began to feel that that had more impact. But look, it's, it's a real clear choice. And, and if you're going to tackle those topics, you're, you're eventually going to go in one of two directions, both neither of which are wrong. You're either going to go in the murderous parlor game direction, the cozy, which I find more objectionable. If you've ever been to a murder scene, if you've been to an emergency room and see gunshot wounds, you know, there were times when I did nothing for weeks but watch atrocity videos. You know, um, you know it's not a game and you know it's, it doesn't look like that. Or you go in the direction of, I'm going to tell it realistically. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I hope I made the right choice, but I'm not sure, you know. Well, and like you said, there are ways to, um, like you mentioned, make it uh, about the report afterwards and the mm -hmm. human reaction to it. There are ways to pan the camera away mm -hmm. that are that can be more effective than so just too, yeah. straight up showing. Yeah. Um, there, it is. It is not the most gruesome, but the the part that's always going to live with me is the bridge scene. You know, bridge, um, yeah, it's one the one, and everyone, that's all I need to say is the bridge scene. The bridge scene. <laughs> there's, yeah. there's more than one part in a bridge in those books, but you know the one. Well, it happened. Yeah, 
it's true. It's a true story. Uh, and there, there are two or three of those throughout those three books that, that I do wonder, you know, boy, should I have done it? Uh, I think so, but I, I think that there are reasonable arguments against it as well, you know, yeah. but the bridge scene has stuck with me. Uh, and there's a couple of other scenes and there, there are a couple of scenes that I should have probably written that I couldn't bring myself to. Wow. You know, um, couldn't do it physically, just couldn't do it. Yeah, no, but I, I and it's it's one of those where the best answer that you can give is, I think I did the right thing, because there is no way to come up with a definitive answer of I did the right thing or I didn't do the right thing. There is only, you know, how do I feel about that? And the fact that these books were written over a long enough span that you believe you did the due diligence and you put the thought and the care into making those decisions. It wasn't just, I wrote this, I wrote this over a summer and, oh gee, I don't know if that was the right move. No, we're, we're talking years. Yeah. Dog of, was six years. Exactly. Of, of should I, shouldn't I, how should I, yeah. if I should. Um, and the reason that I agree with you in that I think that that was the right move is because of that ultimate intent to show what the end result of, you know, the way that we might live our lives up here and not think of the domino effects as they move south. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To see just how big that ripple gets in a non sanitized yeah. and yeah. authentic way. You know, I'll tell you a couple of things about that. Well, three things, if I may. I don't know how you, you're all doing for time, but. Oh, we're good. I remember writing yeah. that scene. And I remember the night before I wrote that scene. Because I knew okay. I wow. hit that scene the next day. I knew that that was the next day's task. Um, and I remember not sleeping. Um, before writing that? Before writing that scene. Uh, and trying to think, how do I do it? Through whose point of view do I see it? Uh, what are the words that, that I'm going to use? You know, uh, <laughs> and, and I remember it to this day. But when I would go out on tour with, with Dog and with Cartel and with The Border, there was not never a single event, not one. I'm going to be in double and triple negatives here, but stay with me where someone did not come up to me afterward to tell me a real story, to ask me if I knew what had happened to a certain relative or loved one. Um, and um, I, I remember so many evenings of just having to hold somebody while they were telling me about their father, their cousin, their wife, their husband, and what had happened to them. And I guess the third thing I'd say about it, you know, I used to get in big trouble, particularly with college audiences. Uh, when I, you know, I would say, look, go, go ahead and smoke your dope. Because, you know, I believe in legalization across the board. Couldn't be legal. And go ahead and, and do coke. But you need to know what your participation is. You, you need to know that you think that's harmless, but you are sending money to people who murder, torture, and enslave 
women and children. So you go out and you do that line of coke. You're an adult. I'm not going to tell you what to do, but do it with the awareness that there were kids thrown off a bridge. That, you know, and that there were, you know, over 200,000 people killed um, in the drug conflicts in Mexico, making it the, the largest conflict since the American Civil War on the North American continent. Um, know these things and, and then go ahead and tell yourself that what you're doing is harmless. Yeah. Well, I cheer this <laughs> up. <laughs> it was though, but I, I, I appreciate your candid response. I really do. That was a, that was, I, is it weird to say that was the exact type of response? I was, I, I was hoping the exact type of conversation we'd have with a question like that. Um, I knew we were going to have a good conversation, guys. Yeah. I was looking forward to the session. So, yeah. Pat to, Patrick, cheer us up. <laughs> Patrick, can you get us out of this hole? I Tell us a joke. <laughs> I think I can. I mean, I, so I would like to. So these three narcos walk into a bar. And... <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to end with final thoughts, but um, there's, do you have time for two more questions? And then I, have, I have time, guys. I'm, I am your creature. No worries. Oh, man. Um, that's awesome. So two things that I, I personally want to know, but I feel like a, a lot of people would be interested to know. Um, a lot of writers that I've heard say, I'm never going to have enough time to live and write everything I want. Right. You're, you're 69 now, right? Unbelievable, but true. It's only, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm wondering, cause I mean, I'm 34 and my career in the publishing world is just kind of getting started. So I can't imagine in 30, 40 years, I'd want to stop or would stop or whatever, but who, do, who knows what's going to happen. So yeah, my, my long way of asking, um, do you have an internal battle still? Did you, or, and you don't have to get into details about what you're doing after retirement. I'm just wondering about like the, the decision to say, this is it. Was it discussed with you and your wife? Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I figured, but I, I was wanted to ask. Yeah. Listen, um, for several reasons, you know, one, and, I, and I've talked about this quite a bit and I won't bore you with it. I'll give you the elevator version of it. You know, we, we don't get to choose the era that we're born in. And um, this era, I felt that there were things more important than Don Winslow writing another crime novel. Um, and people ask me, well, why don't you write a novel about you know, MAGA and the Trump era and all of that. And I said, well, yeah, for the following reason, by the time I wrote it and it got published, I'd be writing an elegy. You know, what we're trying to fight, that battle would have been over. Not time to do it. You know, this, this yeah, is a, a fight that requires an instant response and, an, and on an almost daily basis. Mm -hmm. um, and so um that that was the major reason. I also don't want to publish just for the sake of publishing. You know, I just don't want to publish for a paycheck. Um, Very fair. And um, and also, you know, I, I uh, there's some more waves I want to ride. Uh, I want to take longer walks with my wife. You know, that's that's a beautiful answer. Seriously, I love that. My um. I'm not trying to make this about me, but my wife's name is actually she's got Jean in her name. It's Tara Jean. Oh, yeah. so I'm sorry, a, what was it? It's a Tara hyphen Jean. Oh, nice. Yeah. It's just a really pretty name. Mm -hmm. Um 
That is seriously a beautiful answer, though. I want to take longer walks with my wife. That is applicable, I think, everywhere. It's love. Um, oh, yeah. Has a thought, this just popped in my head, but has a thought occurred to you, well, how do I want to spend the rest of my time? Because it, fe- it feels like from that answer that your answer is pretty much, obviously, the things that you want to address with your platform. But when it comes down to it, you want to spend time with your family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's fair. Yeah, I think it's fair. You know, listen, again, I, I've had such a bigger career and a better career than I'd ever dreamed. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you say you're 34. Did I get yes, correctly? And, yep. and you're thinking about where's my career going? Sure. Dude, I, I was 40 before my first book was published. That makes me honestly and, feel better. <laughs> and I got paid a whopping 7500 bucks. I, I, I was six published books in before I could quit my day jobs. Jobs okay. plural. Right. So um, you're 30. You got time, man. Yeah. yeah. You know, you, don't don't worry about a thing. You know? Oh, yeah. Uh, no, I'm, I'm uh, not in a rush anymore. I, I, I'm just riding the wave, if you will. But I, you know, realistically, you, you come to a point where, you know, you have more days behind you than you have ahead of you. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and and we are in this fight and we need to fight this fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but the time not spent doing that, you know, when, when I leave this session, I'll walk back a hundred yards to the house and, you know, see if Gene wants to go for a stroll. That's awesome. I love that, man. And the neat thing is, is a lot of fans get right. Ra- and I'm not saying your fans, but I mean, we all see it on social media or, you know, you hear about it, but there's fans that just seem to get, especially social media, how it doesn't help. They get lost in the idea that like creators are people. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if you're ending on a book that you've spent a trilogy that you spent almost three decades on, it's your heart. I think that's the best way to say it's been a great time with you guys. Here's my very best attempt at what yeah. I want to put up. That, that's awesome. As a fan yeah. of yours, I, I think that's great. Um, Brandon, you got anything to add before? Appreciate that. Absolutely. No, I think that was uh, really nicely put. (laughs) Um, The other question I have, and again, uh, back to the reading, you were talking about uh, the reading I went to um, in PA for years last year. You were talking about at one point. I don't even know how this came up. I think it was a fan that asked uh, about kids, kids banned books. And and you, you were, to paraphrase, you said that kids are a lot, they're a lot smarter than we give them credit for. Is there anything, I feel like this would be the best way to end with the question before we do final thoughts. Is is there any thoughts that you want to throw out there um, about children, books? uh, Well, yeah, I mean, the first thing that I have to say today, you know, is that three more kids and three more adults were killed in a school today um, by a mass shooter armed with uh, an assault rifle. Jesus Christ. So when are we going to do something about that? Um, But to answer the question you asked me, um, it it almost brings us full circle with the first questions you asked. When I was a kid, we were allowed to read anything. Mm -hmm. My mother told the librarian at my school, whatever he wants to check out, you just check it out. And if he doesn't bring it back, then it's a problem. But otherwise, I don't want to hear from you. <laughs> don't make the kid read out loud. Because I was, you know, reading history books that, you know, were 
fairly advanced and they, they would challenge me on it. Right. Can you read this book? And my mother got pissed and walked in and said, just check the book out for the kid. So my mom and dad, and there were two kids, my sister and I also a professional novelist with 43 books to her credit, published books. Wow. Right. Two kids in the family, both became professional writers largely because we were allowed to read anything we wanted to read. And our parents didn't think we were stupid. And I think that these people who want to burn books and ban books think that our children are stupid, that they're not capable of holding two conflicting ideas in their brains and deciding which is the correct one. They don't think the kids understand shades of gray, that they can only understand black and white. Mm. Um, and it, it, and this censorship now comes from both ends. It comes from the left and the right, to be fair. It does. It Absolutely. does. You know, um, and so the idea of burning books and banning books is so antithetical to where we should be and where we want to be. And then while I'm preaching, and I promise I will close on this, we've stopped largely teaching art. We've stopped largely teaching music, and now we're stopping teaching literature. And then we wonder why our society has gotten coarse. Right. One reason is we're no longer teaching beauty or the aspiration toward beauty. It's horrible. You know? Uh, seriously, as a father of one... And one on the way that that terrifies me. Yeah, it's terrifying. How old are your kids? One and um, my three. oldest is three, and then my wife's five months pregnant. So yeah, yeah. yeah so three. yeah, so three and minus something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, one thing my wife and I we still laugh about it. You know, we had one kid; he's thirty-three now, and um, everyone when we were pregnant, as they say, when we were pregnant, although you know, I wasn't throwing. Yeah, up, yeah. But, um. They'd say, oh, my God, your lives will never be the same. You'll never travel again. Yeah, we will. We have to. I'm working in England and Africa and California, and I'm not going to be away from my family. So kids come and if, you know, a little more work, but not a lot more work. Oh, wait, at least two. It's going to be horrible. And two is great. You know, oh, no, wait until he's eight. Wait till he's 13. Wait. It was all great. It was all so much fun. You know, and people are always like ragging on you about the kid. You know, kids are fun, man. You just made me think of something I didn't realize until now. Um, so Phil's three and I've been writing with the mindset to be a novelist since my wife really helped me refocus and mm-hmm. on reading and whatnot. But that was back in 2013. And um, I feel like around 2019, 2020, and Brennan can attest to this is uh, when I finally found my voice. It took like, it took like seven or eight years to find my writing yeah. voice. Yeah. But, but being a father, I got a lot less time to write. Cause I want to be with my son all the time. Exactly. Yep. But I noticed something. This is, this is, this can't be a coincidence, man. Like, I feel like that because I I'm my, my main theme, it just comes out is a a kid being killed or, or something to do with family, just like stuff that terrifies me. And it feel like that that kind of all 
becomes an amalgamation of um, powerful emotions, love, yeah. beauty, fear. Absolutely. Can I, can I use this gray hair to give you a little unsolicited advice? Do it. Yes, please. I don't mean to be condescending or patronizing. Mm-mm. A guy that I it was a professor of mine, we we're talking about a book of his. Mm-hmm. Great book. And what I'm not going to give the title because I don't want to, you know, oh, I don't, okay. it's a private conversation. And, he's, mm-hmm. and I, I said to him one time, that was a really great book. And he said, yeah, it is. And I wish I'd never written the damn thing. This is before I was even married. But, and I said, why is that? So I was shocked. And he said, because I missed my kids growing up. Oh. I wow. never forgot that. Never forgot that. So when my kid, well, even now, when my you know kid was in the house and I was struggling to be a writer, I never shut the door. Holy shit. You just changed my brain approach. Not once. Um, and uh, I put, there was none of that, don't disturb daddy, he's writing, or be quiet, or any of that stuff. If he wanted to come in and play or throw the ball or go outside or whatever, screw it. I got up from the desk. We went outside and did it because I can always stay up later or get up earlier in the morning if I need that time back. But I could never get that time back with my kid. Thank you. And, um, I put an old Atari computer. <laughs> you go to the Smithsonian, you'll see an old Atari. <laughs> I know what Atari is. Atari, <laughs> Atari computer next to mine on the desk. And Thomas will sometimes, this toddler, two, three-year-old will come in and bang on that thing. And when I was writing a book called The Trail to Buddha's Mirror, he was writing The Trail to Boots and Mirrors. (laughs) So I got to tell you, man, the best decision I ever made in my life. And because the world is not going to suffer, and I'm not going to suffer if Don Winslow writes one less freaking book, Right. But I would suffer and that kid would suffer if, if I didn't take that time. Holy so shit. door was always open, man. I'm just going to leave you with that. Not saying right or wrong, but, you know. No, I'm not saying this because we're recording. You just changed my writing approach because I would always go with the Stephen King uh, door shut on the first draft, second draft open. But no, fuck that. I- I'm right there with you. He's already three and makes, and I sleep with him almost every single night. And I, I hope that never changes, but it will. It eventually. will. <laughs> it will. I, I, we picked Thomas up one day at the end of the day. And he, he said, what did you do today? I said, I said, Oh, I wrote. And he went, Oh yeah. How many pages? Kids <laughs> <laughs> are ruthless. We're all still ruthless. We don't give a shit. Cold blooded killer. You know, that kid. <laughs> Brennan. Um, we're going to do final thoughts now, unless you got something else, buddy. I'm going to throw two points in super duper quick, just off what yep. Don said earlier. Number one, um, as a, an elementary music teacher, oh. I appreciate your support <laughs> of the art. Oh, I appreciate you, man. I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I, and, and, you know, mantra, whatever it is, what we need to do with kids is always two words, presume competence. Thank I think you. that that says it all. Said it much better than I did. Thank you very much. Yeah. I learned it in school. (laughs) (laughs) Don, do you have it? Had to be good for something. 
<laughs> any final thoughts? No, this has been this has been just fun, man. I've just enjoyed the conversation. Like I said, I knew I was going to. Sorry it took me a while to get here. You You're know, busy. You're super very, busy. Very patient with me, and I appreciate that. Uh, but I always knew we were going to get it done, and uh, glad we did. It's been a good time, and, and thank, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much, and for that advice. Brennan knows this, listeners know this, but like having Peter Straub, that conversation that I bring him up because it relates to you. And I'll tell you once that he, his conversation and the interaction we, me and him specifically had via email until he sadly passed away um, was he was someone that I wish I knew my whole life. Mm -hmm. Like I generally, like I miss him. I miss him in my heart. And, um, and, and I'm getting, Hey man, tell me if I'm being too much, but like this conversation, because when we're talking about like, especially my boy, like he's my, he is my pride and joy, you know, and, and your advice just like that change, that really changes my life in a better way. So thank you. It'll change his too, man. That's beautiful. And I do want to say one fun fact that I feel like you would know this actor. (laughs) My father's a teacher, my brother's, but my dad where he taught when he was still teaching before he yeah. retired was at the school for kids that um I don't know what the proper word is they were socially they they just were they had rough lives okay and they weren't in uh quote unquote regular school right one of the teachers he worked with was Mark Goddard the actor <laughs> and I just thought that was so weird like he's the, That's weird. one of the biggest actors in the 60s and now yep, he's yep. just yep yeah doing that living um, life man just living <laughs> life. yeah brendan uh final thoughts for you sir you know what don i just can't thank you enough for your time for your willingness to traverse any topic and give just the most thoughtful answers on uh i have enjoyed this conversation immensely yeah, it too. is right up there with my favorites on this right. show so well, thank you so much Thanks, guys. Hope to see you in person sometime soon. And, you know, I'm in San Diego area winters and Rhode Island summers. So if you're in that area, give me a shout. I'm in that area. All right. Absolutely. Yeah. Give, yeah, give me a shout. Come, come on down. Yeah. I'll take, I'll get you real clam chowder. Oh, my God. <laughs> Everybody. Not that milky baby puke. Not that stuff. milky baby puke. <laughs> I got in so much trouble for that. I mean, Did you? Yeah. Yeah. I, I because I didn't realize that two days later I was going to be in Boston. <laughs> yep. The crowd was outraged, you know. Oh, <laughs> they were asking me about that in Germany, you know. Uh, you feel very strongly about your clam chowder. Yeah, I can't yep. do accent, you know, but it, it was pretty funny because they took it very seriously. So. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, you have made choice in podcasts. Thank you for picking us. you enjoyed that episode with Don Winslow, check out episode 79, Chuck Polinick, the author of Fight Club, Choke, Haunted, amongst many others. You can also check out episode 105, where we talk, me, Brennan, and a guest host, Ken McKinley, talk with Peter Straub. That is an author that I personally was affected by big time, affected in the greatest of ways, influenced and uh, inspired by him as a person, by his work, specifically Coco and that Blue Rose trilogy. Um, It's worth noting that that's actually his last interview 
that he ever had. Sadly, he passed away last year. Um, we truly miss him deeply still, forever will. Episode 129, that is with Richard Shizmar. He's the author of Chasing the Boogeyman. It's actually a sequel coming out very soon. And episode 133, Rachel Housel Hall. She personally has been praised by Don Winslow, and she uh, co-wrote a book with James Patterson, so we're checking that out. And episode 174, Cynthia Palayo. She is the author of Children of Chicago, a personal favorite of mine. There's also a sequel out now. It is called The Shoemaker's Magician. Uh, there's a few other episodes where we uh, talk to some other legends in the field such as 168 david morrell and the lansdale so we got david morrell joe r lansdale keith lansdale and casey lansdale and one other you should really look out for is uh, episode 200 that'll be coming out in a couple weeks that is our 200th episode with dennis lahane He's the author of Shutter Island, Mystic River, Gone Baby Gone, amongst many other incredible books. So if you're a first time or listening to the show, we encourage you to check out all the other episodes. It's a slew of authors. There's some game creators on there. There's screenwriters, musicians. We hope some of you subscribe. That'd be great. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Subscribe to uh, whatever you listen to podcasts on. We also have a store where you can check out mugs like this. Um, Everything can be found at deadheadspace.com. Thank you for listening to the show. We hope that you check out a few more episodes, spread the word, and hope you have a good one. (laughs) 